Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Lisa Jewell, number one New York Times bestselling author of The Night She Disappeared. Kim, a concerned mother, and Sophie, a mystery writer, cross paths when Sophie discovers a clue to the disappearance of Kim's daughter, Tallulah. New York Times bestselling author Lee Child has this to say about the book. No one tells stories like this better than Lisa Jewell. She gets right into it, doesn't mess about, puts real seeming characters with rich interior lives through 350 pages of insane suspense, and then hits us with an ending we never saw coming. I love it. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing. And uh, you can join us there and, and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I, I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, and you're coming to us all the way from London. I love this magic of the technology. I know, I know. It's just these sorts of things seemed like they were logistically impossible two years ago, and now it's just part of our day-to-day -day lives, isn't it? Just mm -hmm. chatting to people all over the world at any any time of the night or day. <laughs> yes, and we'll keep our fingers crossed that it works. But uh, we're recording here uh, about three weeks before the release of your book that we're going to be talking about, uh, which releases on September the 7th, the day this comes out. Uh, tell us what's going on in London right now. Uh, well, because I'm English, I will, I will first obviously have to describe the weather. Uh, we've had a very, a very disappointing July and early August, but we seem to be having some lovely, warm, sunny weather at the moment, uh, which is lovely, lo lovely backdrop to everything. Uh, in terms of COVID, we're on the up. 
we did. We took the brakes off on July the 19th and took all the restrictions um, out of play, um, just as case numbers were, were getting really high. Um, and ever since then, they've plummeted. So we did a sort of slightly experimental thing. Uh, and it seems to be paying off. We seem to be reaching some sort of herd immunity scenario here. Fingers crossed and touching wood. Um, but yeah, so yeah, kind of exactly. almost feels normal here. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Well, part of my research, Lisa, when I do, do on authors, I go look at their Twitter handle and their Instagram handle. And I see on your Twitter handle, you describe yourself as 18 novels. You might need to update that yes. now because you get 19. Two teenage daughters, one husband, three animals. And you say... I love the dog the best. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking, <laughs> is she talking about the three animals or everybody that she just described? E she e says, <laughs> everybody that I just described, everybody who lives inside my house, I love her the best. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what kind of dog? Oh, right. That's a complicated question. She's a very rare breed. She's a Dutch spaniel called a Koikohuncha. Um, and yeah, so she's basically a sort of red and white spaniel with dangly ears and... Uh, and a pointy snout, and uh, she's the love of my life. That's great. That's great. Uh, you're you're born in London, uh, bred there. You live there. Um, you studied arts, uh, fashion, illustration, and communication. Uh, how does that help you, Lisa, with your writing? No, it really doesn't. Um, <laughs> and that's the thing. I've I've been asked this by 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 men before, actually. Um, not not just in relation to the fact that I studied fashion, but whether. Um, it, it, being a woman um, gives me some sort of insight into writing and describing <laughs> wardrobes and clothes and how people look. But I just think writers are generally quite good at, at explaining what people look like in books. So, yeah, no, it hasn't. It's, it's made no impact on my writing at all. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, for our listeners, you're, you're one of the most popular authors of fiction in the United Kingdom. You're number one New York Times bestselling author of 19 novels. You've sold over five million copies internationally translated into nine language and uh you know you've written everything lisa from romantic comedy to mystery and suspense and i'm just curious about that evolution kind of how you went from the beginning to that and sort of where where you see uh does it does it will it continue to evolve are there parts of both that kind of stick together talk about that yeah um yeah there are parts of both that stick together but talking from the beginning of the journey um actually my my taste in literature before i started writing my first novel which i started in, in my mid 20s was very dark i'd been through um, a period of reading a lot of those trashy real crime novels and what have you um i liked a bit of brett easton ellis i i like dark literature one of my favorite books is the collector by john fowles um and I'd always thought that I would write a book one day, but I'd be middle-aged and it would be dark. But the fact that I started writing it um, much earlier due to a sequence of events um, in my 20s, and I just was madly in love with the man I'm now married to. Um, and so any sort of idea I had that I was going to write something dark kind of went by the wayside. I just, all my characters kept falling in love with each other. And um so my first novel was called Ralph's Party and it came out in 1999 and it was a big hit in the UK and off the back of having a big hit for your debut novel, obviously your publishers would like you to keep recreating the same trick. Um, so I found myself just, you know, I was Lisa Jewell who wrote romantic comedies, quirky romantic comedies. Um, so what actually happened was midway through my career, up, up at the, till that point, my sales started <clears throat> dipping slightly and that actually was amazing for me because 
it gave me the opportunity, a bit of breathing space where my publishers weren't expecting anything in particular from me to kind of push some boundaries a bit and start exploring themes that I'd not been able to explore before. Um, yeah, so with every novel, probably from about my sixth novel onwards, I kind of been pushing it a bit further. And but seeing mm. how much I could get away with before my readers <laughs> said, stop, what are you doing? Where's my lovely romantic yeah. comedy? Yeah. Um, yeah, just pushing it a little <laughs> bit until my, yeah, to see if anybody ever told me to stop. And nobody ever did tell me to stop. Uh, so I just got to the point where I was writing really, really quite dark um, psychological thrillers. And no, I don't think that I'm going to carry on evolving. I think I've got as dark as I'm uh, capable of getting or as I want to be. And I'm in a very, very happy place with the sorts of books I've been writing over the last few years. I think I've found my my, my happy space. So I'm going to stick, yeah. stick here. That's great. I mean, I really enjoyed the book. You've got a new fan here. I'm, I'm looking back at the ones I haven't read. And this one just really pulled me in. Um, and I want to, we're going to talk more about that, but beforehand, I know you've probably answered this question many times over, but, uh, I love your story about, and I, I'd love to uh, listeners to hear that, that how you as a writer got started on something as simple as a bet. And, yeah. uh, yeah. And, and, and I know you've told it before, but, I have. Uh, if you, <laughs> yeah, many times, but just, you know, you, you had this bet with a friend you've been, I, I love the, the term you were made redundant. I mean, over here, we call it laid off, but, uh, you were made redundant and you had to figure out something to do. And somebody bet you to write, uh, some chapters, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what happened was, um, so I didn't follow the usual path that people assume writers would take of going to university and studying English and reading classics. And um, I, I left I left school and I did these strange fashion courses and I ended up working in the fashion industry for quite some time um, in sort of quite menial junior positions in the fashion industry. Um, and then by the time I was in my mid-20s, I was actually a secretary. And I just lost my job as a secretary, being made redundant, which means that my role was no longer required. Uh, it sounds quite tragic, doesn't it? The, the English <laughs> yeah. expression for it. it sounds really <laughs> depressing and sad. Um, and just after I'd lost my job, I found myself on holiday with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, and all of his friends. Um, and I, um, yeah, I found myself having this very drunken conversation with one of his friends <laughs> at four o'clock in the morning about the fact that I no longer had a job and that I was, you know, I think I was nearing 27 at that point. And she said, what do you want to do when we get back to London? And I said, I'm going to sign up with some temping agencies and see if I can get another secretarial job that way. And she said, but surely there's something else you'd rather be doing. You could use this as an opportunity to change your life and do something that you've always wanted to do. And this is what I was saying earlier about always thinking I'd write a novel when I was middle-aged. Um, and so I brought that up. I said, well, I kind of always thought I'd write a novel one day. She said, why don't you just do it? Just just write three chapters. And uh, she said, I'll tell you what, if you write three chapters, um, I will take you out for dinner to your favourite restaurant. And we shook hands uh, so it was a bet. And yeah, we shook hands. I wrote the three chapters. She took me for dinner to my favorite restaurant. And those were the first three chapters of Ralph's Party, which was my first novel. Yeah, that's great. And uh, listeners, we're going to talk more about uh, Lisa's writing life or journey, some of her different things in writing and maybe some thoughts she has on our Patreon channel after we're done here. But uh, I'm not going to delay any longer. Uh, let's get into uh, to the book here, Lisa. We've got uh, uh, the book title, The Night She Disappeared. Uh, the title says a lot right off the off the top there, um, 
did you pick the title? Was that a collaborator? No, uh, no. My work, my, I always have a working <laughs> title and they never get chosen for the fin- finish thing. And that's fine. I know that now. So it means I can, yeah. I can choose any working title I like. Um, so this that's one was, this one was actually called Dark Place, which is the name of the big mansion that we'll probably yeah. talk about later in the book. That was my working it, title. Exactly. Well, let's just, uh, let's jump to setting for a minute because, uh, you know, you set this book in a suburban England, a quiet, small town. Uh, tell us about the town. Is that typical for what we see in small towns in England? No, this is actually based on, um, I drove from London down to the countryside a few years ago to collect my puppy, actually, from the breeder. And we drove through, I think, three in a row of the most spectacularly beautiful villages I'd ever seen with huge mansions around central greens and village ponds and weeping willows um, and stunning Georgian houses. And I just we drove through these villages and I thought these can't be real. People can't actually <laughs> live in these places. Um, and I think they lodged in my they lodged in my memories. And that was I mean, she's six years old now, my dog. So it was six years ago that I first saw these villages and I've never been back. Um, but then I decided that I would like to I decided I wanted to set this novel in a boarding school setting. And I remember that one of these villages had a boarding school um, in it. Um, and so that's why I chose to set it in a village rather than in a sort of more urban or suburban area where I normally set my novels. Um, and yes, yeah, so they're, they're not very common. It's not very common to have such a beautiful place. <laughs> a lot of a lot of England is very disappointing if you were to if you were to spend any time driving through it. Uh, this is a particularly picturesque area. So it's a fictionalized version of these villages I saw on that country drive six years ago. Um, yeah, and yeah, well, it's called Upfield Common. Yeah, well, I know that a lot of folks in the US they watch the BBC, they watch the mysteries, they set some of those in these small little communities like this and you, you get to know the characters and the people in the city and they all know who's who at the shop and that kind of thing. So it had that feel a little bit to it until it got darker and it got darker when we found out about uh, the manor house. So tell us about this uh, house, which uh, has a bit of a history to it yeah. where lots of things are mm-hmm. happening, but we don't know what until later in the book. Yes. Yeah, so Originally, all the action, because I don't plan my writing, I just sort of set off and and see what happens as I write. And so my original plan or thought was that all the action would take place in this boarding school. Um, But then I needed a character uh, with a swimming pool because I I, I envisioned something horrible happening in a swimming pool. So I thought, I'm going to need a mansion for this. (laughs) And... um, you know, we have our fair share of mansions in the UK. Um, these commuter belt sort of areas are full of bog standard big houses. And I could have put my character Scarlett in a bog standard big house. But I just thought, come on, let's just throw everything at this house. Let's make this a, like a fantasy house. And it's the sort of house where I sort of envisage that the, the Rolling Stones might have spent a summer back in the 60s recording an album or something. Um, and, yeah, so I, I invented this house. It's called Dark Place. It's huge. It was it's part the first the early parts of it were built in the 16th century. So they're very medieval um, with the little leaded windows and what have you. And then it's been extended by every single person who's lived there since has extended it. So it's got a Georgian extension, a Victorian extension. And then Scarlett Jack and her family who live there in the novel have put a big glass architectural masterpiece of a box on the back of the back of the house. So it's just a house that's evolved and it's been telling stories 
for its entire life, this house. Um, I even wrote a Wikipedia page for it, uh, <laughs> it which is in the book, which um, just shows how completely carried away I got with this house. Um, yeah, so that's Dark Place, and that's where Scarlet Jack lives. Yeah, it's a mysterious place. In fact, interestingly enough, I'm about to interview an author uh, who wrote a book called Searching for Jimmy Page, you know, of Led Zeppelin. And, and you know, Stairway to Heaven was uh, apparently recorded at the Headley Manor or something. And I got the sense of that big, dark, foreboding house, kind of like maybe what you put uh, in this book here. Yes. So, uh, well, that was exactly yeah. what I was going for. That's exactly yeah. the sort of the type of fantasy house I was I was trying to create. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, let's do this. Uh, I want to ask a question about uh, the, the style here for a minute because you used an interesting technique. Um, you sort of alternate time periods. Uh, you're telling the story, um, you know, one year apart in the beginning. And then, you know, as the chapters change, the, the time periods get closer and closer together until they meet, you know, at the end. And you're telling us a story in two time periods. Um, I thought that looks kind of challenging. You know, how did, how did you come up with the idea and, and how did you pull it off? Yeah, I actually find it much, much easier. I'm always really impressed when I read a novel that's all, all uh, the entire narrative is, is shown from one character's point of view and in one timeline. I always think that's much harder to pull off because you're only seeing everything from one perspective and in one moment. Um, whereas when you start dividing the narrative up into different characters' points of view and different timelines, you see the whole, and because I don't know, because I don't plan and I don't know what the thing is that's happened, um, I have to have lots of people looking at it. And for example, Tallulah, who is the teenage girl who goes missing in this book, uh, she, I hadn't planned to write any chapters from her point of view. Um, but as I got further into the book, so originally I was only writing from Kim and Sophie's points of view. As I got further into the book, I thought, I am not going to have a clue what has gone on here unless <laughs> I can work out what Tallulah was doing a year before she went missing. So I kind of zoomed in like six chapters into the book and, and put Tallulah in place. Um, so we've actually got three timelines. We've got Tallulah from a year before she goes missing. Then we've got Kim from the night Tallulah goes missing a year later. And then we've got Sophie who who starts um, investigating the disappearance of Tallulah a year after she disappears. And from my point of view, that is by far the easiest way for me to piece together the story is to have as many people looking at it as possible. Yeah, well, it was very seamless. I really enjoyed you know that. Sometimes when you jump back and forth, uh, in some books, it can be irritating, but not here because you were picking up clues, you know, as you went that you didn't have in the in the later timeline. Um, all right. So we're going to have a little reading now, which we do on Charlotte's podcast. We're going to the opening of the book and uh, the characters you've already alluded to them. We've got Kim, who's the mother of Tulula. Tulula has had a child. She's very young. Um, they've decided to go out for the evening um, and the mother is going to take care uh, of Tallulah's baby while she's out. And uh, anything else you want to say? Because we're very early in the book here. Uh, yeah, so this is from the first chapter. This is the opening of the book, in fact, is Kim. It's midsummer. Um, it's a Friday night and Kim is at home. She would normally be at the pub herself because she's only 39. Uh, she's a young grandmother and she is in looking after Noah, the baby, while her daughter Tallulah and the baby's father, Zach, go to the pub. Um, and yeah, so she's just sitting there 
trying to have a relaxing evening and failing because the baby won't settle. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is just from taken from from that part of the opening chapter. Noah's crying has kicked in properly now, and Kim sighs and gets to her feet. As she does so, her phone buzzes with a text message. She clicks it and reads, Mum, there's some people here from college. They asked us back to theirs just for an hour or so. Is that okay? Smiley face emoji. Then, as Kim's typing a reply, another message follows immediately. Is Noah okay? Noah's fine, she types, good as gold. Go and have fun. Stay as long as you like. Love you. Kim goes upstairs to Noah's cot, her heart heavy with the prospect of another hour of rocking and soothing and sighing and whispering in the dark while the moon hangs out there in the balmy midsummer sky, which still holds pale smudges of daylight, and the house creaks emptily and other people sit in pubs. But as she approaches him, the moonlight catches the curve of his cheek and she sees his eyes light up at the sight of her, hears his breath catch with relief that someone has come and sees his arms reach up to her. She collects him up and places him against her chest and says, what's all the fuss now, baby boy? What's all the fuss? And her heart suddenly expands and contracts with the knowledge that this boy is a part of her and that he loves her, that he is not seeking out his mother. He is content for her to come to him in the dark of night to comfort him. She takes Noah into the living room and sits him on her lap. She gives him the remote control to play with. He loves to press the buttons, but Kim can tell he's too tired to press buttons. He wants to sleep. As he grows heavy on top of her, she knows she should put him back into his cot. Good sleep hygiene, good habits, all of that. But now Kim is tired too, and her eyes grow heavy, and she pulls the throw from the sofa across her lap and adjusts the cushion behind her head, and she and Noah fall silently into a peaceful slumber. Kim awakes suddenly several hours later. The brief midsummer night is almost over and the sky through the living room window is shimmering with the first blades of hot morning sun. She straightens her neck and feels all the muscles shout at her. Noah is still heavy with sleep and she gently adjusts him so that she can reach her phone. It's 4.20 in the morning. She feels a small blast of annoyance. She knows she told Tallulah to stay out as late as she likes, but this is madness. She brings up Tallulah's number and calls it. It goes straight to voicemail, so she brings up Zach's number and calls it. Again, it goes to voicemail. Maybe, she thinks, maybe they came in in the night and saw Noah asleep on top of her and decided that it would be nice to have the bed to themselves. She pictures them peering at her around the door of the living room and taking off their shoes, tiptoeing up the stairs and jumping into the empty bed in a tangle of arms and legs and playful drunken kisses. Slowly, carefully, she tucks Noah into herself and gets off the sofa. She climbs the stairs and goes to the door of Tallulah's room. It's wide open just as she left it at 11 o'clock the night before when she came to collect Noah. She lowers him gently into his cot and miraculously he does not stir. Then she sits on the side of Tallulah's bed and calls her phone again. Once more, it goes straight to voicemail. She calls Zach, it goes to voicemail. She continues his ping pong game for another hour. The sun is fully risen now. It is morning, but too early to call anyone else. So Kim makes herself a coffee and cuts herself a slice of bread off the farmhouse loaf she always buys Tallulah for the weekend and eats it with butter and honey bought from the beekeeper down the road who sells it from his front door. And she waits and waits for the day to begin. Uh, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Thank you. I love the uh, the local 
color there is where as to where she gets her honey from the yeah. beekeeper <laughs> at the front door down the road. Exactly. Uh, uh, but but uh, so this starts us off uh, on this uh, journey to find out what happened to Tallulah. Uh, almost, uh, Lisa asked you to read another section because there are almost really two inciting incidents in this book. We deal with Sophie Beck, and she's a she's a protagonist. She's a novelist. She's a successful novelist, and her boyfriend. Uh, has been asked to be the new headmaster at Maypole House, this school that you said you wanted to put in the book. Um, and she finds something uh, very interesting while her boyfriend is off to school one day and sort of gets embedded in this mystery. Tell us what she finds. Well, yes. So what she well, interestingly, the, the only thing I really knew about this book before I started writing it that was going to happen was that... Um, Someone was going to find some bones buried in the grounds of Maypole House Boarding School. Um, so that was the only thing I knew. And I wasn't sure who was going to find the bones. Originally, it was going to be Sean, who is the head teacher. Um, but I switched his perspective around to Sophie's quite early on because I suddenly realised she'd be a much more interesting person to follow the clues. And then when I actually got to the um, the point of writing the moment of Sophie finding there's she finds this sign nailed to the fence at the back of their cottage in the woodlands next door um and it says dig here uh it's scrawled on the sign in a um, black marker pen with an arrow pointing down um and she goes and she gets a trowel and and I just assumed she was going to find bones I thought here's when she finds the bones and I'm going to describe that and then I suddenly thought if she finds bones, then we know, I know, as a, as a writer who doesn't know what's happening, that the person is dead, uh, be it Tallulah or whoever else I'm going to bring into this story, is dead. And now I've got a dead body and now somebody's dead and I'm going to have to deal with that and I'm not ready to deal with that. <laughs> so I kind of stopped and thought, okay, there's a dig here sign. She's dug. She's got to find something. What can it be? And this image just dropped into my mind of a ring in a ring box, a diamond ring in a ring box. Uh, so I had to dig up this diamond ring in a ring box and I didn't know what it was there for. Um, <laughs> so, yes, that's what Sophie finds. She finds a diamond ring in a ring box. And that's what starts the whole um, bring, brings the whole cold case back into the light um, and gets the the uh, police back um, on the case to find out what happened. Yeah. I love that because um, you've got this uh, heroine in the book, Sophie, who is uh, writing her own mysteries, who suddenly finds herself uh, as an investigator, which is a quite different position from writing a story where you don't know what's going to happen, but you have total control over, over the yes. story here, here she doesn't have t any control over the story. She's just trying to follow the clues. And one interesting fact is, uh, and I'm going to ask this about you because I know you've written 19 novels now. Sophie can't remember that she put that very clue in one of her novels, you know, yeah. dig here. And uh, I'm just wondering, after 19 novels, do you sometimes forget what you put in some of your earlier <laughs> early Yes, books? very, very much. I really, really do forget. And I'm feeling it now more than ever because what's happened since um, Then She Was Gone became a huge hit uh, in, in America and Canada over the last year or so. Um, I have got a lot of new readers who, particularly during the pandemic and during lockdown, have been keen to find books um, to to distract them and have been going through my backlist. And I keep getting messages on social media from people asking me questions about books that I wrote 14 years ago or 18 <laughs> years ago. 
um, about characters I can't recall having written and and scenes I don't remember writing. Um, so yes, I think um, it is it, it's entirely possible to write something years before, completely forget about it, and then have it almost kind of um, get mixed up with your own mem- real memories of things that really happened in the real world, and not not quite be able to see where the line lies between the two things. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, well, speaking of the ring, which was dug up, you, I'm, I'm shifting now to kind of antagonist. And, uh, you know, a lot of times an antagonist can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be a place, it can be a circumstance. In this case, you probably have several antagonists. The the, the house you mentioned could could be a looming antagonist. Uh, but then there is uh, Zach. He, he is the uh, father of Tallulah's child. He's somewhat uh, manipulative, controlling. Uh, he's the one that on that particular night in question, when they go out to the pub and uh, Kim stays home to take care of the baby, he has in mind to propose to her and give her a ring. Yeah. And so when this ring shows up later, we're all wondering, well, how did that ring get in a box and yada yada. But still, um, this idea of Zach, manipulative, um, do you see him as an antagonist? Do you see him as helping to drive the story to some Yeah, some absolutely. And he, again, a bit like Tallulah, um, making it very clear to me that I needed to show her her run-up to her disappearance. Um, I had assumed when I decided that I'd like to write about a teenage mother, which I've never written about before, um, that she would be a single teenage mother. And I, I had decided that her, the father of her baby, Noah, was out of the picture and not interested. Um, and then he just kept, he just kept coming back and coming back. And and there are scenes in the book where Kim is saying to Tallulah, oh, Zach's left another message. Can you, when are you going to call him back? Are you not going to return his calls? And she's saying, no, I don't want to return his calls. And then eventually she does. Um, and it was almost like he forced himself back into Tallulah's life, but also forced himself into my book in a really weird way. Because <laughs> he hadn't, he wasn't meant to be there. He wasn't meant to be there. Um, and once he was there, once he'd forced himself back into Tallulah's life and into the book, I needed to, I needed to give him something to do. He couldn't just be sort of <laughs> floating around ineffectually. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I put quite a lot of, of effort into making his relationship with Tallulah very questionable, um uh giving him yeah just enough sort of darkness and uh, he never does anything really aggressive or violent or horrific or obvious but there's just always a suggestion hanging over the way he every every interaction he has with Tallulah that he could be um mm, yeah yeah so he was definitely definitely part of the background of of people in the book who yeah might might have had something to do with with whatever bad things have been happening. Yeah, and you you throw a lot of different characters in here who we wonder are they involved? Are they involved? How are they involved? One of them, of course, is Scarlet. She's Tallulah's friend, uh, sort of a secret girlfriend. You deal with this sort of uh, same sex uh, love issue. Uh, she's confused. She's not sure that kind of thing. But Scarlet's a little bit out there, so to speak. She's a uh, not mainstream. She lives in this house that's not mainstream. Um, just tell us, give us a peek at Scarlet, um, because that's one of the characters that we follow very closely through the book. Yeah. So Scarlet, I always knew I wanted to focus on um, 
a, a small handful of, of the students from the, the boarding school in, in the village. And the boarding school, as you say, is called Maypole House. And it's for 16 to 19 year olds. It's really a crammer college. It's really for children who failed their exams at their previous schools and their parents, just very wealthy parents, just throw them in there for a couple of years to get get the damned exam results so they can get on with their lives. Um, So I knew I wanted to that contrast between Tallulah, uh, who comes from a very modest background, um, and this person who was going to come into her life um, and scarlet was that person and she is um yeah she's not conventional she's kind of the coolest girl when we first meet scarlet she's um she's not actually at the boarding school anymore she's at the local college with Tallulah um the local college being uh the equivalent of I don't know what the equivalent would be in America what would it be yeah we have uh, colleges and universities are four years uh but they have some two-year programs as well community college was it yeah there is a community college so they're at the community college together okay and I wasn't sure what sort of girl she was going to be but she is incredibly popular people follow her around like sheep um but I didn't want her to be the conventional sort of cheerleading kind of pretty um, glossy type. I didn't want her to have that sort of image. I wanted her to be quite mm-hmm. scruffy and almost look like she might smell a bit, which sounds quite strange. Um, but I wanted her to have this completely inexplicable appeal. Mm. Um, so she was so much fun to write. And the thing is with with Scarlett, she's... She's 19 years old, like Tallulah, uh, lives a completely different life. Um, Tallulah comes from this incredibly warm, loving, nurturing environment, whereas Scarlett lives in this huge mansion in the country. And she's alone a lot of the time, which you become aware of as you're reading the book. She's alone in that mansion. Um, and she just sort of grabs onto things in life, anything that feels like it's going to give her life some sort of texture or meaning. Um, and she kind of grabs onto Tallulah in that way. And so there's this real imbalance about the way they feel about each other, um, which becomes apparent throughout the course of the book as well. Yeah, it's a great book, The Night She Disappeared. Just a couple of writing life questions before we uh, jump over to our Patreon channel. Um, Lisa, I asked this uh, of authors who've written a number of books. Um, if you could tell your younger writing life self uh, something very helpful say about the uh, craft of writing that had you known it when you got started, it might have helped you, what would it be? Oh, I genuinely think that there's nothing I could have told myself back then that that 21 years of writing novels haven't taught me. I think everything, I've, I've had to make so many mistakes and I've had to make them over and over and over again <laughs> um, to get to the point that I'm at now where I feel I feel like I'm just in in the zone um i wouldn't say the books write themselves but i can see i can see um potential mistakes happening before i get to them i don't tend to spend so long writing myself into corners um and having to delete things and rewrite things and go back and unpick the plot and start again um because i'm much more in my instincts are much more finely tuned um and i'm i kind of know what works um so i don't think there's anything i could have told myself at the back uh, at the beginning of my career that would have been helpful i had to make all those mistakes along the way uh to learn Mm. anything 
And it sounds like you're still a, a, a pantser, so to speak. You yeah. enjoy figuring it out as you go, and you enjoy that. I do. I really, really do. And I've, I weirdly, I've done a few a few Zoom events over the last week or so, and every single with panels with other authors, every single one of them has been a pantser. And we've all just been sort of looking at each other with wide eyes going, why doesn't everybody write books like this? It's so much fun. It's like, it's like you know, it's like reading a thriller in as much yeah. as you, you I'm, I'm pretty much a, a chapter ahead of the reader while I'm writing in terms of knowing who's done it, who's dead, who's alive, what happens next um, and what's going to happen in the end. So, yeah, it's from, from my point of view, now that I've got that level of confidence and now that I trust my instincts so much more than I ever used to, it's just it's just too much fun, frankly, right? <laughs> writing books when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that is great. Lisa, Lisa Jewell, the bet that keeps paying off every yeah. year. She uh, started out on a bet to write her, her first book, uh, became one of the bestsellers, uh, and then she's been writing and writing and writing, and she's found her zone, as she says. Lisa, I'm so happy that uh, you've done that because I've enjoyed your book, and uh, uh, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.